Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. If you're a fan of this show, it's a good guess you're a cookbook lover too. Cookbooks allow us to travel vicariously to places we've never been and meet people we otherwise may have never met. With the help of her grandmother, Vanya, Brazilian-born Ana Realman used cookbooks to learn how to read. Kit Wall, she knows how to write them. The incredibly prolific author has written 15 cookbooks so far, with another due this fall. When it comes to her books, Kit does it all. She cooks the food, writes the text, and handles the food styling, photography, and layout design, too. I think you'll be fascinated by her process. And although Brian Thais has written only one cookbook so far, his debut offering, Infinite Feast, leaves you hungry for a whole lot more. We're cooking up books from scratch on this week's Louisiana Eats. Brian Thais is a home cooking maestro with a passion for 20th century cooking history. His new book, The Infinite Feast, is bursting with recipes, colorful photographs, and entertainment tips. And it includes interviews with celebrity chefs and restaurateurs like Philip Lopez and Joanne Clevenger. Quite an ambitious project for the first-time cookbook author. But as Brian explained to us, the Infinite Feast is a nod to the extravagant cookbooks of the Atomic Era, the kind he fell in love with, well, before he got into publishing. I have always been a foodie at heart. I've been focused on developing recipes for only about 12 years, though. Uh, I was working for quite a while at an investment bank as a business manager or a budget manager. And when I left there, I said, what do I want to do? I said, I want to publish a cookbook. I've got an extensive collection of vintage cookbooks in my own library that I treasure. And they date roughly from 1945 to 1965. And so you can get a sense of the period that I enjoy. And they've always inspired me to rewrite some of the recipes to use healthier ingredients because, of course, that was a, uh, a time when America was using strange, you know, new canned things all the time, et cetera, that had too much salt. And so I try to try to fix those things when I rewrite those recipes. But more than anything else, the charm of that period is in the the themes that uh, they always had and the, the fact that they would try to boil the ocean with their uh, many international 
types of dishes and holidays all in the same cookbook. And I said, let's see if I can do that. But why don't I organize it in such a way to where it's like a year of recipes. And so I said, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of cookbook I want to make. But in order to do that, I need to be qualified, at least in my mind, to tell people how to cook. And so I said, I need an education. So I said, well, where do you do that? What do I do? And I looked, and the biggest name was ICC, uh, which is International Culinary Center in New York, uh, down in Soho. And I said, okay, that looks like the biggest and best one. Uh, Jacques Pepin is on the list of deans, and I like him a lot. So let's go there. And so I did. And I graduated on the dean's list, not to boast, but I was very proud of myself. I uh, put in a hard year's work of of both that and I was a recipe tester uh, for my externship. And I said, okay, now I think I'm qualified to write recipes and and tell people what to do when they're in the kitchen. Uh, And so then I found, um, you know, the very nice people at Pelican and they offered me a deal on the first proposal. So I love them and and thank them for that. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. Well, this is just really unlike any book that has come across my desk in a long, long time. It, it is vintage. It's kitschy. It's just, I turn the page and I think to myself, Brian is so brave that he just gets out there and does these outrageous things that he takes a picture of. I mean, <laughs> and it, it's so right out of um, the 1960s, Brian, what is it about that mid-century vibe that just compelled you to write this book in this particular style? Um, I think I think that it owes a lot to say a 1961 Better Homes and Gardens holiday cookbook, uh, for example. But at the same time, I think it has a bit of my voice as well. I enjoyed taking it in my own direction. And you know, writing uh, things that I don't think you might have read in a in a book then. So there are some contemporary things going on. But to answer your question, it's just the charm of that period. Everything having to do with the theme menus, uh, which are one of the things that I just like zero in on like a laser when I'm looking at an old cookbook like that. The idea that, that they would give you ideas of what you should serve with other things. You don't see that very often these days, right? Um, what you might do if you had a birthday party for a boy or a, you know, a shower uh, party for a girl, you know, whatever it might be that you just don't have, you know, the imagination at your fingertips and you want some ideas about it. You know, those kinds of things are certainly in, in books these days, but not with exactly the same amount of innocent sort of charm and enthusiasm that that period uh, has in, in, in terms of the publications they were doing then. Well, I can definitely assure you that your voice did make it through every <laughs> single part of this book. Thank I, you. Reading the book, I really felt like I got to know you. And what an unbelievably interesting character you are. Oh, thank you. We have everything from international dishes to international parties. And in your party concepts, you go from intimate affairs to galas and um, <laughs> come up with some suggestions. Let's for, have a gala. <laughs> you come up with some suggestions for things that I'm really like, well, that's very clever, Brian. 
like that planting party. Yeah. It always seems to be party of one when I have um, something to put in the ground. But don't you <laughs> wish all your friends would come over and help you? Absolutely. Right. And all I have to do is, co- what, what would you prepare for them out of your book if you were having a planting party? Well, probably the Garden of Eden uh, vegetable soup, I think, to start, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be appropriate? That's perfect. <laughs> and, and what about for a hobby party? For a hobby party, um, well, it depends on the hobby, right? Wouldn't you take uh, take your cue from that? Say you were building model boats, you could serve Captain Nemo's crab dip, you know? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just brainstorming here. I really, really loved your international cookies, the cookies of many lands. Th- that just seemed to be... A party all by itself, talking about theme parties. Mm, could be, yeah. What are some of the more um, obscure cookie recipes that you added to the book that, that you love? Well, I think the ones that are the most obscure are probably the non gardouise uh, which is not a pronunciation that I feel fully confident of, but they are the Persian walnut cookies. And they, they're wonderful because they're sort of like this very – healthy, light, delicious biscuit almost. Uh, They're not a a sweet cookie at all. They're just like, oh, I could probably have three or four of these and not blow my my diet. Uh, And and so when you go to these different cultures and you see, you know, the way different people and their uh, – what their flavor profiles that matter to them are all about – you find that it's very different than an American flavor profile, and you learn something about how you could be eating. Uh, so there is something very valuable about Cookies of Many Lands, I, I guess, in that regard. However, I must say that my chocolate chip champion chubbies um, <laughs> are extremely popular, but this is America after all, and that's the American cookie. Uh, people go wild for those and scream for the for the free recipe all over the internet. I have a problem actually with my social media director doesn't know how to keep track of these people that are threatening me for not getting the free recipe. So, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, well, you need to buy the book, but you hate to say that, you know, on the, on the internet sometimes. So, well, you also include so many useful tips. I didn't know about. The onion in the freezer trick to keep it yeah. from crying. Yeah. How'd you figure that out? <laughs> um, I well, the, you learn things along the way. I can't tell you where I learned every trick. Like I'd love to re- try to remember where I learned, you know, putting marshmallows in the brown sugar box would help keep your brown sugar soft. I couldn't tell you who taught me that. Um, I do know where I learned how to cut up a bell pepper, though. Um, that's one, one thing I can think of. A wonderful chef at a, at a school on the Upper West Side in Manhattan taught me that one time. Um, but, yeah, they just come from everywhere, these tips. Well, you know, it seemed that cookbook author, maybe your next career is going to be interviewer because I didn't expect to find interviews with people oh, yeah. in your cookbook. But, um you interviewed uh, Gabrielle Corcas and Billy Oliva, one of my favorite chefs from Delmonico's he's, in New he's York. He's a super guy. 
He's a wonderful guy, and I was just tickled to see interviews. Now, why did you think that was an important thing to I was to probably add? having too many Proseccos on the plane from New York to uh, New Orleans one time, and it just crossed my mind that it would just be a fun way to add insights into the book. I don't know everything, so why not talk to other people who do? And wouldn't it be interesting if I found people that, you know, had high profiles, you know, the executive chef of Galatoire's. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. And so I I asked Chef Philip and he was like, sure, I'll do it. Like, oh, wow. Okay, that's great. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, so. Well, there's so much more in the book than just recipes. And I have to admit, another thing that just flipped my lid, <laughs> you know, I've, I've looked at a lot of books who the author feels the need to add a playlist. That's fairly common these days. Really? Okay. Music to go along with yes. the, the food. But this is the first cookbook I've ever opened that had sheet music in it. Yes. Now, how in the world did you end up with music from Yankee Doodle Boy to Away in a Manger? How did that end up in your cookbook? Well, I there there is a vintage cooking and crafts book for Christmas that I've always loved that I have in my collection. And one of the things they have in there are Christmas carols. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to just put sheet music in? Because who doesn't you know, want to have music at their dinner party? And I thought, okay, so I can't you know, write to uh, the you know, rights owners of a bunch of songs that, I, that are sort of current that I love. So let's find ones that are in the popular domain, which these are, public domain. And uh, we'll have somebody in Nashville, which I did. I found a, a great guy, uh, write new arrangements so that, uh, you know, I had the rights to the arrangements, and here they are. It seems like one of the things that you set out to do in this book was to make the whole world just a little bit more swankienda. Yes. What's up with you in the swankienda? <laughs> it's just a word that I've always liked. Uh, it, it was coined by someone at the Houston Chronicle, and it goes way back, and it just kind of says what I wish life could be for everyone, and I think it already is for lots of people, but it's something to focus on when you host the ones you love. You want to uh, make make it as swanky as you as you can, and that doesn't mean, you know, diamonds and tiaras, but uh, it uh, might mean flowers, you know, who, who thought to put flowers on the table? Uh, you know, lately, you know, do something nice like that. Hang up some uh, some streamers. I mean, you probably have more things in your house to decorate with than you than you know. And it doesn't have to be Mardi Gras. It could be any day. Uh, hang those things up, and uh, and you've got a swanky endo, right? So. Well, I'll tell you what. I think you made the whole world just a little bit more swanky endo with your wonderful new book. So congratulations, Thank you, Poppy. Thais, author of The Infinite Feast, How to Host the Ones You Love, Recipes from the Big Easy and Beyond.
prolific cookbook author Kit Wall welcomes us into her home studio, where she writes, cooks, styles, and photographs her beautiful books. Stay tuned. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. I'm Kit Wool. We're in my studio where we write and photograph cookbooks, among other things. I've known Kit Wall for many years, and her Garden District home studio is one bustling place. Kit's an artist, a sculptor, a photographer, and a master at writing recipes. Over the last two decades, she's produced over a dozen cookbooks, celebrating chefs and their cuisine. Several years ago, Louisiana Eats got a chance to see this work in progress when Kit invited us into her studio to share some of her secrets. The first cookbook was the Arnaud's Restaurant Cookbook that came out just before Katrina and turned into an encore career. What are your parameters when you're looking at a project and the, the whys that you're asking? Well, the first question I generally ask is, is, is it part of the series that I write? Or is it a standalone cookbook as the Arnaud's cookbook was and as the P&J cookbook was and as the James Beard 25th anniversary cookbook was? So those were different types of projects, all three of them totally different from each other, but then the series is very much a formula, a format. And that's your classic series? That's the classic series. Classic New Orleans. Ah. And then you fill in the blank. We've already hit New Orleans classic seafood, we've done appetizers, we've done desserts. Gumbo. Gumbos and soups. Brunch. Brunch. (laughs) That day, Kit was working on her 11th cookbook. This one's theme was Creole food. Which is, I think, number seven in the series. So you're getting ready to begin a book, and you've gotten past the book concept. What happens next? We decide what recipes we want, and then following that, we decide which chefs have the best example of that. 
Ah, and so most of the recipes in the bulk of your books come from New Orleans restaurant chefs? Yes, restaurant chefs because they, they cook it more often than any of us. They know more about how the dish goes together, and they've made improvements to it. Every single chef improves a dish every time they look at it. And they, they would make gumbo much more often than anyone except perhaps you. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever whatever the recipe is. So we get the recipe from the chef, and yes, chefs give recipes, if you ask nicely. And what form do you usually get a restaurant chef's recipe in? Chef speak. Oh, what is chef speak, kid? <laughs> when a chef writes a recipe, they're using shorthand that they use in the kitchen, that every person that works in a kitchen can read. Mm -hmm. But you would not want to try to cook from it if you were not a line cook in a restaurant. So we take that and we translate it into normal English. What? It has to be usable. It has to be user-friendly. It has to be fun to work with. It has to be clear. As the ingredients are listed, they need to be listed in the order they're used. Okay. And then when you're describing the steps of how the dish is prepared, that uses a certain language. And again, clarity is king there. So. We rewrite the recipe, we test the recipe, we make sure the recipe tastes like the restaurant dish because you would not want to prepare Commander's bread pudding souffle and then have it turn out differently than you had it at the restaurant. Her mise en place was carefully laid out with perfectly sliced green tomatoes all ready to fry up in a smoking hot black iron skillet and the boiled shrimp and chilled remoulade sauce was sitting ready to dress out a crisp bed of greens. You see, all the food for photography was being prepared right there in Kit's kitchen. Well, we've photographed all of the recipes now. We've tested them and photographed them, but the taste and how it looks are sometimes two different things. And two of the recipes that we shot we're not quite happy with the way the shot turned out. What are some of the problems? Well, Joanne's fried green tomatoes with shrimp remoulade. I imagine that must be Joanne Clevenger at yes, the upper line. Yes, from the upper line. A wonderful lady. The photograph doesn't do the dish justice. It mm. looks flat. So we're replating that dish to shoot it better. You know, we're not looking for a beauty contest here. We're, we want to make it appealing. And this is actually some very nice fried tomatoes. They show enough green that we know what it is, but I'm going to overlap them a little bit to give it dimension, which we were lacking in our first shot. So I think this is where we want, but that's the prettiest one, so I'm going to put him there so it shows on the height. And we want six shrimp that are about the same size, and we have them here. That one's too large. I really admire the chefs that just do this innately. They know what they're doing and they do it a thousand times a week and have it right every time. If you want humility, hang out in a restaurant kitchen for a while. What is the difference between how you're composing a plate for the camera as compared to how it might be in a restaurant when they put it down in front of you? 
Well, in a restaurant, they've probably coated the shrimp completely with the remoulade, and there's a lot more remoulade probably on the fried green tomato. So what we want to do is, in a photograph, try to separate the components out a little bit so we can see them individually and see them as a whole. Honestly, Kit, it's a very pretty plate. It looks better in the picture than it does in person. Shame on you. <laughs> this is the magic of computers. Now look at that. Beautiful. Can you get prettier than that? It, it looks like it's ready for the book. It is. <laughs> it is. Yay. <laughs> One down, 800 to go. Often, to get those perfect food shots, it takes up to 800 photos. But that's why Kit's photographs are simply so delicious, you want to lick the page. I was curious to learn just how long the whole process takes. Generally, with our publisher, the classic books take about six months from start to finish. Maybe a little longer, maybe eight months, depending on how fast we are. What do you think the hardest part of all this turns out to be? Turning it in. <laughs> Meeting the deadline? No, not meeting the deadline, letting it go. You see your baby leave, other people will get to play with it. And when Kit's new books appear in the stores, everyone can't wait to play with those delectable dishes. Cookbook author Kit Wall in her New Orleans studio. afternoon we spent with Kit Wall, she was redoing a shot of fried green tomatoes topped with a shrimp remoulade. It was clear just from watching the cooking process that getting those tomatoes just right was a big part of the challenge. Here's how Kit does it. Slice green tomatoes into half-inch pieces. Heat some vegetable oil in a heavy skillet. Kit prefers to use cast iron. Then dip each tomato slice in buttermilk and dredge in flour. Make sure to get both sides fully coated. Carefully place each slice into the hot oil and cook until golden brown. Turn the tomato slice over and repeat the process on the other side. Then place them on paper towel to remove any excess oil and serve while still warm. They're delicious topped with shrimp remoulade, but honestly, fried green tomatoes are good all by themselves. One thing I know for sure, Kit Wall's fried green tomatoes are real Louisiana Eats. David Spielman is a photographer and author whose books include When Not Performing, which profiles Big Easy musicians, Katrinaville Chronicles, and most recently, New Orleans Portrayed. 
David worked as the photographer on Kit Wall's first book, The Arno's Restaurant Cookbook, and he also collaborated with me on Louisiana Eats, The People, The Food, and Their Stories, published in 2013. To get a better understanding of his process, David joined us in the studio to explain how he was able to capture some of my favorite people in the Louisiana Eats book. David, welcome to the radio show, Louisiana Eats. It's an outstanding pleasure. Two of my favorite people over in southwest Louisiana are Carlos Knott of LA31 Brewery and the famous Louis Michaud of the Lost Bayou Ramblers. And so much of their story has to do with Bayou Tesh. I want to talk about the places where our visions altered. So what happened? So I got over there. Mm -hmm. We set up on the bayou. But the shadows, the busyness of it didn't translate, and it quite honestly looked too forced. Uh So up on the road was this beautiful old barn or a structure. So I asked Carlos, what's the story? And he told me, This barn had been there for a very long time. It was where they housed World War II German prisoners. So you can see in the picture the the wood, the angles of the wood, the texture of the wood. And that felt more like a South Louisiana musical situation. Yeah. And this would be where some guys on a Friday afternoon or at a picnic would set up and start playing. And that's what they did. And you just can't imagine how much fun to sit there and listen to these guys goofing and playing. You know, that's one of the real treasures of what I get to do. The other thing about that particular picture that you really captured that I love is that Carlos is old enough to be Louis' dad, but they have a relationship of complete contemporaries. And they have such an intense mutual admiration for each other. (laughs) And the way that they are looking at each other in that image, you got it. Yeah. You know, I tell people that music and food are the two great generational bridges because you learn from your grandmother or an auntie or somebody about cooking. You sit at the, at the apron of. Same thing happens in music. The young musicians sit on the porch while the older ones are playing, and so there's this great understanding. And quite honestly, you take it a step further, musicians and, and the cooking were the predecessors to the civil rights movement. And so, you know, right here in South Louisiana, we have these great lessons. I mean, you know, the, the, the black musicians are sneaking into the white bars and the white guys are sneaking into the honky-tonks to hear the music long before it was permitted. Well, now that you brought up one of my favorite topics, which is food and race, there's the great story of Rudy Lombard, who was the person who ended racial segregation in restaurants in New Orleans, Lombard versus Louisiana, And he had told me that he was inspired to do that because when he was a little boy, he played on the street corner right across the street from Pascal Manali's. And 
he saw those white people going in and out of the restaurant, and he knew inherently that he couldn't go in there. And so he said to himself, one of these days, I'm going to go in that restaurant. Sure. And so that was such a fun Fun afternoon we got to spend together with Rudy <laughs> at Manali's and the barbecued shrimp. Tell us about how you staged that photo. Well, we had a, a huge obstacle. They were putting the new drain system in into Napoleon <laughs> Avenue. And so we had to kind of figure out a way to shoot. So I shot from a little bit of a lower angle. So you can see the top of the house, you can see the oak tree, and you can see the awning of the restaurant. And then we just sat there and started talking. And the, and the camaraderie, the conversation between you and Rudy were just exceptional. And so he's completely at ease. And so we talked and we laughed. And, you know, it, it one moment, unplanned, he just kind of holds his wine glass up as a toast. And there was a shot. When I see it, I know I've got it. Well, you got it, baby. The last image that I really want to discuss... It involves a sound that you hear on the streets of New Orleans, the hooves of a mule. And then if you're lucky, you hear the ringing of a ship's bell, and that announces that the Roman candy man is coming down your street. All right. So how did you do this picture? I try to show something different. I want to show the inside of his wagon, the the tightness of the proximity of the space that he has to work in. And so I asked permission, as you do with a, with a, a ship. Captain, may I come aboard, please? <laughs> and he kind of looked me over and, and he said, uh, okay. So I got up in there and it's unbelievably tight quarters, but there is form and function to every inch of the place. I had to use a very, very wide angle lens, but I wanted to show him because 99% of the people in this city, they see him from the torso up. And what a, a special person. And, and, and he is aware of the tradition that he is a keeper of. And, yeah. and that's the other thing that I find wonderful. Well, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart of agreeing to be my collaborator, my partner in crime on this project. And uh, I hope you're getting as much of a kick out of having it in print as I am. Oh, it's my pleasure. New Orleans-based photographer David Spielman. By the way, his stunning portrait of Leah Chase, featured in his latest book, New Orleans Portrayed, originally appeared in my 2013 book, Louisiana Eats. You can check it out on poppytooker.com. What is the best-selling cookbook of all time? Stay tuned. And we'll answer that question when we come right back.
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. The North Shore is brimming with welcoming patios, boasting waterfront views, and decadent dishes. Indulge in fresh Louisiana seafood, locally grown produce, homemade sweet treats, and ice-cold brews. You're invited to feed your soul along the Tammany Taste Culinary Trail, just 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter, and a world away. Plan your St. Tammany visit at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the best-selling cookbook of all time? That's not a question easily answered. Books that appear on most top ten lists include Julia Child's classic, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, the New York Times Cookbook by Craig Claiborne, and Deborah Madison's epic, Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. But perhaps the most important cookbook in the American canon is Irma S. Rombauer's Joy of Cooking. After her husband's suicide, Irma created a career for herself by self-publishing the first edition of Joy in 1931. By 1936, publisher Bob's Merrill printed a second edition, and it was off to the races for Irma and her passion project. A third edition was published in 1943, reflecting culinary changes of the time. Then, the joy of cooking became a family affair in 1951, when Irma's daughter, Marion Rombauer Becker, became co-author of the fourth edition. Marion carried on with future revisions after her mother's death in 1963. The sixth edition, published in 1975, became the all-time most popular version of the classic cookbook, with more than six million copies sold. That version is over a thousand pages long, with over 4,300 recipes. Marion passed away in 1976, but her son, Ethan Becker picked up the family torch and authored the 75th anniversary edition of The Joy of Cooking, which was published in 2006. The story of the Rombauer-Becker family and their massive body of work is so compelling that in 2003, Anne Mendelssohn authored Stand Facing the Stove, an amazing memoir of the cookbook that helped shape American food as we know it today. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats.
sparked your interest in reading when you were a child? Brazilian-born Ana Realman was four years old when her grandmother, Vanya, helped whet her appetite for the written word using recipes. I remember sitting with my grandmother in her living room, and she would be reading recipes at night, right before bedtime, as a way to entertain me, because she knew I liked to eat. And my mom would send me to spend nights with my grandmother, since she lived by herself across the street from us. I was so interested in what she was reading, and she read with such enthusiasm that I would follow her finger, and I think at some point I start catching up with the same words, you know, açúcar and farinha, those words in Portuguese, like sugar and flour. And, and that's my recollection, you know, of how I learned to read. That's just one of the many touching stories found in Anna Realman's food memoir, I Learned to Cook with Recipe Books. In her self-published book, the New Orleans blogger and cook takes readers around the world with her as she shares memories and recipes from her life in food. When Anna joined us in the studio, I asked what compelled her to write this book. Well, first I have always been asked about my recipes. And then one day I was preparing a salad. A friend of mine and I were going to a theater and... Um, I prepared quickly because we were in a hurry, and she looked at me and was like, how did you just do that so fast? And I said, well, it's kind of, I don't even think about it. And she's like, could you please teach me? I said, I can't. How am I going to do that? <laughs> I can give you some books. No, you don't understand. I have to know even from shopping. The, I don't even know how to shop for food. I said, oh, okay. But that stayed in my head. And I started thinking about it. Well, how did I learn? And then I realized this is a lifetime. All my life, I follow my grandmother and my mother going to the fresh market and looking at how you buy the best carrot and how deceiving it is. The bigger is not exactly the better one. And so Vanya didn't just teach you to read. She also taught you a little bit more than that, didn't she? Oh, she taught me everything. Um, she taught me how to cook. And she taught me actually how to fix the button that would fall from my shirt and all these little things. And, um, but mainly the food was our connection. What are some of your first memories of cooking with her? She would boil the milk. At that time, we had to boil the milk. And she would collect the cream from the top of the milk and separate in a little plate. And we would make cookies. Oh. Uh, with that cream later on. That was my that is my first memory of cooking with her. You all must have had quite a sweet tooth because then you went on to cakes. Huh? <laughs> yes, cakes were the main attraction. I think <laughs> I remember getting my first um, toy mixer. I was probably eight, and it was a tiny, tiny little bowl, and you could only do with a, maybe a tablespoon of butter and one egg, and I made a tiny little cake that looks like a muffin nowadays. Your love of food has served you very well, I think. Tell us a little bit about where that love of food has taken you in life. Uh, well, my first experience with cooking a lot, like uh, in a, on a routine basis, was when I started giving my friends those cakes. Because, uh, you know, as a teenager, I didn't have money to buy gifts for their birthday, so I, I made the cakes. And in one of those parties, a friend was opening a restaurant and asked me 
to make the sweets and the cakes because he loved my cake so much. And, um, and I was in college, and it was summer break at that time. And so I went and started working at the restaurant. And the one thing I didn't do was to bake the cakes. I started getting involved with the salads and helping the cooks to prepare. So it took me professionally. I ended up working in restaurants, and I opened another restaurant in Rio that is incredibly popular now called Gula Gula. What does that mean, Gula Gula? Gula, oh, it's hard to translate literally. Um, Gula is gluttony. <laughs> um, so it will be the double of that. So your love of food took you all over the world, didn't it? It certainly is the driving force for my memory of the places I have been. So uh, New York, for example, when I went there with my husband, I had lived there before I met him. And so he was like, well, you lived here, so show me the places and all the places I kind of remember were the places that had to do with food, including the place I worked there. I worked at Olives in Soho, and I was the manager there for about three years. In France, I my memories of the places in France have to do with food, and so we're <laughs> in Portugal. I was like, okay, I remember because I ate in this place, I ate this, I ate that, <laughs> you know, more than anything else. I was particularly so. fascinated in your book, the many food ties that you found between your Brazilian food at home and the food you found in New Orleans. Yes. Would you talk with us about that? Yes. In Brazil, not so much in Rio, but in the northeast of Brazil, where I also lived, the African influence in the culture, it's very visible. And so you have all these spices and all the dishes that have that kind of a, a, the, the rices and the seasoning, the spicy foods are very familiar to me. And melatons, what do you call them? Chuchu. <laughs> and how do you all eat them? Uh, chuchu is almost like a weed. It grows everywhere. It actually can kill some trees because it grows over the trees and over the top of everything. It's the cheapest vegetable you can find in my country. It's the first food you give to a baby. And so I was very surprised to find it's so common here, but so difficult everywhere else in the United States. It's almost like this specialty food. And it's like, oh, Jesus, this grows in the backyard at my grandma's house. <laughs> And what about beignets? You all have your own version, don't you? Yes, sonhos, we call. Um, translation would be dreamers or dreams. So uh, that was funny when I tasted beignets. I was like, oh, that's just like a sonho. <laughs> <laughs> well, no wonder you feel so at home here between oh, the melatons and the beignets and the coffee, too. Oh, absolutely. Big coffee culture in big both places. Big coffee culture, big French bread culture. It's such a charming story. You did such a good job with the print that even though it's not a children's book, the print is the size that I could see someone teaching another child to read mm -hmm. with your recipe book. It's cute you mentioned that. My brother called me to say he started doing what I used to do with my grandmother with his own son. His a younger son likes to cook. So they started reading my book together at night. And every now and then they try a recipe. So the tradition continues. New Orleans blogger and cook, Anna Reelman. Her self-published memoir is called I Learned to Read with Recipe Books.
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 